This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and is a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. And Richard, uh, well, we have a lot to talk about. Late Tuesday night, the Justice Department responded to former President Trump's request for a special master to review the material seized at Mar-a-Lago and provided some more information as to the growing case it has against former President Trump. Now, Andrew McCarthy over at National Review has a lengthy and detailed breakdown of the timeline that I'd suggest listeners read through for you know even more specific information. But central to the case is this sworn document from June 3rd from the custodian of Trump's records that they'd made a diligent search um, after the FBI had taken away some documents and no unauthorized documents were left at Mar-a-Lago. And yet on August 8th, when the FBI showed up, they found more than 100 classified documents, many featured in a photo attached at the end of Tuesday's filing. And they note that some of them were in Trump's desk. Now, worse for Trump's defense is that he confirmed on Truth Social that he was in possession of all those documents. So I need to know, Richard, where do we go from here? What is Trump's defense and why in this case is he asking for a special master in this case? What does that mean? They're arguing it literally right now as we as we record. All right. Well, I mean, th this world is filled with all sorts of comedies. Let's take the special master problem first. A special master is somebody who's usually appointed by a district court judge to deal with a whole variety of issues that are around discovery of one kind or another. Most cases are so large that when you think of a district court judge, and in this case, it's even a lower level, a magistrate judge, think of them as running little law firms rather than being single individuals. Uh, the volume of stuff that comes from paperwork is so intensive uh, that they often have to farm it out to other people in the system, and then they exercise a kind of review process over what is done below. So the thing could be issued under their name. I think one of the reasons why Trump wants this is he thinks he may get better with respect to the draw. Um, he hasn't won a lot from the guy who's in charge of the case. And so he says, maybe if I go down to the special master, I can do it. It also will probably draw the thing out a little bit. And it may give him a chance to present the kinds of arguments that you might not be able to present right before the judge. But this is a high risk maneuver. Why the Justice Department wants to oppose this is a bit of a puzzle. The kind of argument they make is, well, he doesn't have standing to deal with this because he doesn't own the papers. I think that's the dead loser under these circumstances. The question is not whether he owns the papers, whether or not he has a claim that he ought to be able to keep it to see them. That's sufficient to give him standing. And then the rest of the question is whether or not you think this administrative process is, in fact, something which is going to work better or for worse. And um, it's a shot in the dark. Uh, I think it's fair to say that most people from the outside don't have a lot of confidence in the rather green legal team that Trump has put to them. So there are going to be a lot of questions about the strategic stuff. On the question about the merits, that Trump is always his own worst enemy. Um, he keeps these particular documents. He could have given these documents back earlier on. And one of the things about them is I suspect he has not looked at any of those documents in the three months between now and the earlier stuff that took place in May and June. Why on earth would he then sort of prevaricate, which seems to be what's happened with respect to them, and leave them hanging around so you could put this damning photograph on the public internet about the level of chaos and confusion about the doctrine? I think his best defense against a criminal prosecution is that he has these things in a sloppy possession, 
But sloppy possession is not the same thing as using them in some kind of a controversial way. There's no evidence that they have been leaked out of this particular facility, no evidence that he's turned them over in any way, shape, or form from this particular facility. So this is not like the leaks in the CIA or similar types of situations, people like Snowden and so forth. And you could say it's less. And then he could try to make a political argument, which is not, I stress, a legal argument. Now, look, you guys went a lot easier when it came to Hillary Clinton with respect to her unauthorized server. And it was much more serious, in my view, because she was now doing active government business on that thing. And she was interconnected. And there was all sorts of opportunities for people to listen in, steal documents and do things. Whereas it's very much harder to do that with stuff is strewn all over the floor in the basement of the Mar de Lago. But what happens is the comparative argument is not going to wash if it's a legal defense. That is, uh, as Mandy McCarthy pointed out in his closing paragraph, if all would you say is you're treating me a lot worse than you treated Hillary Clinton, people will come back and say, yes, we ought to toughen up on Hillary, but that's no excuse for letting you walk. On the other hand, to the Trump supporters and to the political world, differential treatment is a much more potent defense than it is in court. And you could be sure that his defenders, and he has many of them, will rise to this particular thing and continue the fight. As best I can see, the argument that he makes as a legal matter is, in fact, not sufficient to deny the offense. The doctrine should have been uh, returned to the uh, narrow offices. But rather, the much more likely thing is it's kind of a mitigation. And, you know, it may get you out of jail time and whatever is going on. Uh, but what's clearly going to happen in this particular case is Trump, his own worst enemy, has essentially given the other side a free shot at him. And that is because he didn't follow the most rudimentary precautions in terms of the way in which he kept and returned documents. And not doing that, he's exposed himself furiously. And so the legal din could be extremely loud, even though the actual compromise of the integrity of these documents to the rest of the world may have been very, very small. So um, leave it to Trump to be uh, somebody who's going to engage in this kind of stuff. And then when he starts to do it, what does he do? He always takes after people who are in his own party and tries to destroy them. So the silliness that he has with respect to the documents becomes the pettiness in which the way in which he deals with his critics, particularly within his own party. All par for the course with Donald Trump. And so I will just end on this one, though. It would be a national disaster if he were to decide to run for president again. He'd get close enough to wreck the entire system, but he could do no good within it, given his own tarnished personal reputation. So, Richard, he may argue that he was in possession of these documents and they were secure, and so it's not that big a deal. But that doesn't seem to be the legal issue at hand, right? It's this it's this, uh, this, uh, this sworn document that there weren't any there, and he's lied to the FBI or his attorneys have. And so I want to know, what, what are the possible charges that Trump could face? I mean, people are talking about um, obstruction. People are talking about causing false statements to be made to the federal government. What, what do you think we actually see perhaps after the midterms are done? Well, I think you're going to see all of the above. <clears throat> I don't see any reason why it is if you're intent on getting him, you would not throw the kitchen sink at him. Well, wouldn't it be that, Richard, I mean, if you throw the kitchen sink and some don't stick, isn't that going to lead, you know, he's going to at least say, well, you know, I wasn't guilty of these things. 
as I said, there's a caveat, and I was about to do it, is all the things that you mentioned seem to be supported on the strength of the record as we now see it. There may be other things that are supported in the record that we don't see that may come out in the fullness of time. Uh, the great danger for the prosecution is always overclaiming, throwing in something, you know, like treason against the United States, aid and assistance of our enemies, which you can't make out on this case. And then what happens commonly is if you start bringing three charges, two of which are good and one of which is horrible. Everybody concentrates on the horrible charge, and it's possible that you will not be able to prevail in any kind of a trial setting on the two lesser charges, which are in fact valid. And so one of the things you tell everybody when they start to bring cases, whether on the criminal or the civil side, you can be aggressive, that's fine. But if you become piggish, it's disastrous. I remember one case that I dealt with having to do with maritime insurance, in which these guys had a really powerful recklessness case and a terrible negligence case, and they pleaded both. A complete disaster, because what the judge did is decided, I'm going to take out the weak case. And then she said, oh, the strong case is no different from that. It turns out when you're dealing with law, two may be less than one, given the way in which the two claims line up. And so that's the advice you'd give. Now, I assume there is no shortage of legal enthusiasts in the anti-Trump camp to be there. So I expect for there to be a lopsided legal team. This is not the same bunch of people who defended Trump against the impeachments. I don't see Alan Dershowitz lined up as the key lawyer in this particular case. I think any good lawyer in this case will say, since what's involved is ongoing behavior rather than past behavior, and that his behavior is so erratic that to take him on as a client now could put you to the terrible position of trying to explain away some dumb things that he's going to do in the future. And it's also, you know, he's got this chronic reputation of never paying anybody for the services they rendered. That's going to feed into the first situation. So I think he's in a relatively perilous position, all self-inflicted. I saw something, Richard, I need to know the answer to, which was, all right, these attorneys have said, um, give this this document to the FBI. There aren't any documents there that wasn't true and, and was proven true. What happens to the attorneys who signed this uh, at this point? I mean, it's been suggested that they become a part of this accessories. Accessories? Part of this case. How does that happen if they're Trump's attorneys? Well, they're entitled to privilege, but only on communications that they have with their clients. Mm. If they make public representations that are false and are known to be false, then and they could be accused of submitting fraudulent documentation, which exposes them to potential kinds of criminal liability. I don't think there's any privilege for basing saying false statements to a public official on the grounds that I happen to resent somebody else who's trying to defend himself. So I think they're going to get themselves into hot water. Now you're going to have to get attorneys to defend the attorneys and the attorneys who are defending Trump now may not be able to defend him if they're under this kind of a cloud. So what the president has done is he's basically painted himself into a complete corner. Um, as I said, all gratuitous. If you sort of looked at this thing at the beginning of the situation, the narrative was, oh, you want me to put another lock on this particular cabinet? Sure, I'm happy to put it on that particular cabinet. What's the big beef? Well, it turns out that's not exactly right, at least if the current allegations are, in fact, to be believed. And so what Trump has to do is, with his rather tarnished reputation is to go into a legal fight over questions of credibility when there's written and confirmed visible evidence against him. This is not the position you want to be in. But Trump's attitude has always been, I could bluster my way out of anything. And he says, look, you know, I've got a lot of supporters out there in the public arena and they're come to bear and to help me. 
Not going to happen in this particular case. I think it could be said of the Justice Department, A, they are certainly politically motivated. I don't like the political motivations that are existed in this case. But if you've got political motives and you have a factual record that looks to be reasonably defensible, then the political motivation just simply drives you to go harder and harder on the case. And if you don't overclaim, as I mentioned earlier, you're going to basically come away with a win. So uh, obstruction is one of these charges, which is all fabricated in the sense that the only could raise it if the other guy does some stupid thing. This is not a charge which could be brought with respect to any misconduct that he had during office. And indeed, it could even be done keeping him in Mar-a-Lago. Right now, I mean, there's rumor that Barack Obama has all sorts of government documents out there one way or another. Uh, but, you know, he's putting them into his library, his digital library. True or false? How can I possibly say? Uh, the question is, is NARA run by people who love Trump and hate Trump? Everybody hates Trump in Washington if they're part of the establishment. And one of the things that you learn is when you're battling out in multiple institutions at the same time, if you don't have any friends in high places and you don't have, in his case, any friends in low places, places, you're in a very bad place yourself. So I want to talk about, about the FBI and the politicization of it. Um, Trump and other Republicans have been alleging that this is you know evidence of corruption in the FBI. It needs to be disbanded. Something needs to be done. But I'm left wondering, uh, I mean, if the FBI really had a choice here, they had their June meeting, they received some documents, they said that was all there is, they had a confidential informant, they found them. What else would the FBI do in this situation? And and I you know I want to point out that you know the FBI has also investigated Hillary Clinton when she was running for president. I mean it's not like it's never happened to someone with presidential uh, aspirations. Well, remember, she was investigated in 2015 before she was actually a declared candidate. Uh, and in fact, they did a softball with respect to her. They allowed her to redact the documents that they sought. They didn't send anybody in with a warrant to take them all out. And so she said, well, this is a personal document relating to Chelsea's wedding or some such thing. Well, it turned out what we were supposed to do was to believe all that. And it's just a terrible precedent. And the contrast is really powerful. But I think the answer is going to be two wrongs don't make a right. We may have screwed up that one. But in this particular case, show us where we're wrong. And you cannot make it as a dispositive evidence to show that there's a political motivation to get somebody as proof positive that you've trespassed on the line between proper criminal enforcement and criminal abuse. And the most frightening thing for Trump to be, if I were sitting there and the prosecutor's office trying to make these judgments, given the fact that I think I have a very, very strong case based upon what is publicly done, I would not get near to the line where the political charges could be said to come into contact with this particular case. That is, if you could win with a conservative hand, you can avoid much of the political backlash. You might even be able to rehabilitate the uh, reputation of the FBI. It is going to be a constant thorn in your political side that people are going to say you're completely political about this because you've been that way about everything else. Mm -hmm. um, I think those charges are true, but I don't think they could derail this particular case, at least as the record now stands. So what we have to do is to see what is going to happen as the further revelations start to take place. And it's going to take place whether you go before a special master or you don't go before a special master. What's going to happen is you're going to have a Trumpian winter unless and until he can find some explanation to say why it is that he didn't tell a lie when it seems perfectly clear that he did. I mean, he's in a very, very bad position. And now I think what you're asking is, well, 
if you know he's in a bad decision, can you exercise prosecutorial discretion, not to prosecute on the grounds that he's a former president? Prosecutorial discretion is one of the great nightmares of all time. Nobody quite knows how to deal with it. One of the arguments you could say is I don't want to prosecute even though this particular guy is guilty because I think that the political brouhaha will be far worse. Uh, well, at that point, Joe Biden can pardon him. You know? And that would sort of solve that. And you remember that Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon for exactly that reason. He didn't think the nation could survive this kind of trial. They were of the same party. Well, if Biden can pardon you know, we can pardon Trump, it's just to stop this thing. It's not going to happen, obviously. Then the other question is, put aside the politics on this, is the case strong enough on the evidentiary record to support it? So what happens in all prosecutorial discretion cases, you got a limited budget, you got multiple cases, and you're going to be quiet to sit there and to figure out one way or the other, for better, for worse, is what the problem is going to be, in order to say whether this case is strong enough to bring. And unfortunately, in this case for Trump, it's strong enough that you can start to bring it, at least on the way in which you've described the allegations to me. And that's what makes it very hard. It would be, some people would argue, an abuse of prosecutorial discretion, not to publish somebody, punish somebody, who in fact has defied all of the laws concerned with national security. So what's going to happen- Richard, Richard, can I jump in really yeah. quickly? If if this is muddled because it's a former president, if it weren't a former president, if it were a civilian, if it were someone who worked in national security, and they did what he did. What what kind of trouble would they be in? It's it, it's uh, the answer is big. I mean, if you actually go back at the time that Hillary was done, uh, many of the people who would detract this as a softball approach pointed out the people who were in line positions inside the various government agencies or the military, all of whom were hit with very heavy sanctions. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, uh, the discretion, it's one of these hardest issues in the legal system is that it's going to be the same issue in a strange way that's going to come up with the student loan program. Did President Biden have it within his discretion mm -hmm. to forgive, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of billions of dollars of debt? I think the answer is probably no, but there's going to be a real fight over that kind of question. In this case, you're not talking about a case where there are genuine factual uncertainties that would lead to no charge. Right. You're talking about some factual uncertainties that may lead to the, re the way in which you decide to charge him, the level of offense or the grade and so forth, or the level of punishment that you'll want to seek. But that's a very different question. As we know, if you're a criminal prosecutor, the so-called charging decision makes a huge difference. You charge somebody with a breach of the civilian peace or you charge him with attempted murder. And you know, the same kind of evidence could support the two charges. Sometimes you let people plead down. Sometimes you don't let them plead down and so forth. So all of that is feeding back here. But the simple point of it is, if they decide the strength of this record looks as though he's committed violations with respect to the maintenance of the possession of these various doctrines and lying under oath to the FBI, those are not controversial kinds of claims. His presidential statute is not afford an immunity, and you will hear calls for the rule of law to be enforced against the great and the mighty all the time. What Trump has done, in effect, is he has burnished the reputation of the FBI by his own misconduct. Last one for you, Richard, because I keep getting asked about this. What if he were, just for the sake of argument, actually convicted of something? What do the consequences look like? And I, you know, people keep asking, does this, is there a part here where he could be disqualified for federal office? Do you think it'd be more of a plead down to a misdemeanor and then there's that? Or do you think 
prosecutorial discretion. Don't charge anything. Well, if you remember, if you remember, Eugene Debs was a member of the Socialist Party mm-hmm. and he ran for president in 1920, was sitting in jail. And in fact, there had been a Supreme Court case, United States against Debs, which upheld the charges against him for roughly insurrection, not protected under the doctrines of freedom of speech. <laughs> and so Trump could run from jail for exactly the same thing. If you're starting to look about the qualifications, all of the Supreme Court decisions on this take the basic position. The Supreme Court sets out all of the qualifications. They're not minimum qualifications. The states cannot add to those particular qualifications in any way, shape, or form. So there was a suggestion that you could say after Trump had concealed his tax records, what we're going to do is allow people to get on the ballot in California only if they make public declaration of their tax returns for the last three years. Can't do that. You could ask him about this politically one way or another, but you can't build that into either state or federal election law uh, because of the spannesses. And it's a correct Supreme Court doctrine. The theory is once you say that you could add on additional conditions, there's such an incredibly long list of those conditions that you could add on, and somebody's going to have to decide which are worth it and which are not. It's a complete nightmare. So, for example, do you have to be a lawyer to be on the Supreme Court? Answer, no. Uh, but then you want to put in there saying uh, you the president can nominate for the Supreme Court only somebody who's a member of an organized bar? No, you can't do that. And so that's what's going to happen in this particular case. So like a zombie, he could rise from the dead and then get into order. And one of the great questions that we had to ask about Trump was whether or not in 2020, before he left office, uh, could he self-pardon? And the answer to that question is probably yes, but, you know, not the smartest thing in the world. So what's happening is uh, you can't keep him from running. By the way, interestingly enough, most people did not get this right. They thought of that he was impeached from president. He could not run again because you could not be open for an office of public trust under the Constitution of the United States. Uh, A public trust office is one that you're appointed to. So the president would still be free to run for reelection even after impeachment. So uh, that's the way the cookie crumbles, my friend. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Make sure to read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, which we publish over at Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. If you found this conversation thought-provoking or informative, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Talk to you next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.